Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Christos Karadzios. He is a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases with an additional specialization in pediatric HIV. I've been meaning to have him on the podcast ever since the COVID-19 pandemic broke out here in Quebec. But as you can probably imagine, he was quite busy saving lives. He's finally here, though, and we talk exclusively about the coronavirus, how we've managed it so far, how we've prepared for what's to come, and a bunch of other stuff. I hope you enjoy this conversation. First of all, so much for doing this. Uh, I, I've been I've been thinking of uh, reaching out to you since the beginning of the year, but I imagine that you were a little bit too busy saving lives, uh, <laughs> as you probably still are. Uh, but I do appreciate the, the time uh, that you're taking. Uh, I mean, I don't know how busy you are. I don't know what your schedule is normally like, but I can only assume that since March, you've probably lost whatever was left of your life. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I, I was lucky. Uh, by the way, thank you very much for the uh, for the invite. Um, you know, I, I I came back from winter vacation at the end of February, early March, and I knew things were not looking good since January because, of course, I'm an infectious diseases specialist, and uh, you know, this is my specialty. And this all came coming. You know, this all started to look really bad. Uh, reminded me of SARS. Um, you know. Uh, almost 15 years ago, not really, but maybe 12 years ago, how long ago it was in 2003. And um, yeah, I knew what was coming. I knew that the lockdown was coming. I knew that this was going to be some, because I'm, you know, I get information, insider information before other people do. Right. And, but I was lucky because as soon as I came back, um, I had to teach McGill because I teach infectious diseases at McGill, the first year class. So I had my schedule was open because I don't do clinical work when I'm teaching. I go to the university, okay. and of course everything was online. So I had to scramble last minute to make my whole course online. Yeah. Wow! Thank goodness for pre-taped classes. Um, but then what that opened up is it opened up to me being available to cover cover colleagues who are either quarantining or um, you know or sick or whatever. So yeah, it was a it's been a little bit crazy. Yeah. And as we speak right now, I'm currently, uh, you know, on the COVID floor. <laughs> so I am uh, running back and forth from uh, the floor to the office. Tell me before, before we get started, first of all, uh, how are you? How is your family? I know you have kids. Uh, how is it, you know, coping during this whole time? It's not easy because it's not easy for my wife. Uh, you know, she's... Uh, She's the, she's the real hero here because, you know, you've got two toddlers, two under, well, now they're under three, but two under three, um, where it was two under two when all of this started, um, where she suddenly has to deal with both of them at home instead of one at daycare and, you know, right. baby. And, you know, she can't leave the house, um, only to do groceries. Uh, we're not allowed seeing any, we don't have the support you know, grandparents, uh, babysitting, this, that. Uh, so even when I work long hours, I come home. Uh, at least when I go away, at least I change my, my mind, my mentality, even though it's in the hospital. 
but it's her that had to deal with this. So, right, right. you know, hats off to my wife. Uh, the kids are fine. What are the, you know, the kids don't understand. Uh, really understand. They're just driving us crazy, uh, regardless of whether one goes to daycare or not. One of them is back in daycare since July, though. Okay. Uh, tell everyone listening or watching, you know, what it is that you are specialized in, uh, where you work, uh, just so we can get a good idea. Yeah. So I'm, an, I'm a pediatrician by training. Um, before becoming a pediatrician, I had a degree in microbiology and immunology, uh, Bachelor of Science in McGill, with some research background there. And uh, pediatrics, infectious diseases, so a, a subspecialist in because pedi pediatrics is a specialty in and of itself, subspecialty uh, infectious diseases, super specialty a pediatric HIV. So that's my... So, th so, so this pandemic is somewhat, you know, kind of down your alley. Oh, you, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. This is my specialty. This is my raison d'etre. So let me ask you something, because, you know, we see this thing breaking out in China late last year. You said that you were pretty much getting ready in January. Uh, obviously, you were, ex were you expecting this at all to make it all the way here? I mean, was there any precautionary preparation uh, happening at that time in the hospitals? Oh, my. Yes. Um, I was expecting it. To be honest, a lot of us were. Here's the deal. Um, whatever happens in China, the information that was trickling out of China may not have been fully disclosed in the beginning. Um, even colleagues and people around the globe that do my job were kind of like, nah, this is going to be like the flu. This is not going to be very serious, et cetera, et cetera. And then Iran and Italy happened. And that's when everybody was, oh, this is no, 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 this is not good. You know, yeah. um, I tended to be a little bit more cautious and I was saying we need to prepare when we prepare. And so we were preparing, but we weren't expecting it to be so bad. And we, unfortunately, uh, the Western world was hit like a tidal wave. Um, you know, yet we were scrambling and we were able to lock down and prepare the hospital as quickly as possible. And we did. And I think that the first wave saved us a little bit here, you know, our preparation, no matter how short it was prior to it, uh, we prepared adequately enough where we opened up uh, beds, we, we, we created whole COVID floors with negative pressure rooms that weren't there before in record time. And uh, that, is, uh, that is a testament to the, uh, to the professionalism and to the, the hard work ethic that my colleagues have, you know? Do you think uh, are hospitals better equipped or better prepared now? I mean, can they manage the capacity better if, um, if ever things get really out of hand? Yes, I think so. Um, there's getting really out of hand and then there's getting really, really out of hand. I think yeah. that we're not, you know, overall getting really, really out of hand where we go over the limit of our ICU beds. I don't think the country is prepared for this, you right. know? Uh, you know, we're not, we, we haven't built two 1,000 bed hospitals in two weeks the way China yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, what we did is we increased our capacity in terms of uh, the types of rooms that we have, the types of ICU beds that we have, we just didn't build hospitals. And um, 
you know, the important thing for that first wave was not to stop it from coming, but to sort of flatten it a little bit where the demand for healthcare is below the number of ICU beds and the number of ventilators that we have. So, so how, what's the capacity right now? Are, are you only working in the children's hospital or are you like in the whole mega hospital? Uh, no, just, okay. I only work at the children's hospital. I, uh, I don't have, I mean, I'm not an adult physician. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though I can take care of adults, I'm not an adult physician, and I. I so, what, uh, so, what's the capacity there for the for the children? Right now, we're fine. I don't have the numbers per se. Uh, we're okay. The first wave saw, you know, the Jewish General Hospital was the one that was the the main um, hospital on the McGill side, and um, I think it was Maisonneuve Rosemont uh, that was the hospital on the. Uh, on the Francophone side, on the yeah. Universal de Montréal, um, that, and Saint-Justine from the children's, uh, uh, from the pediatric side, we were sort of delegated as the spillover. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at one point, you know, there were 20-something people in the ICU here with, uh, you know, they had to open up a whole new section. And all that section was filled up with uh, patients with, uh, with COVID-19 who were intubated um, the, the you know the Jewish was practically over capacity. You know, um, I, I was thinking about this, and I, they even spilled over over to the children's. I'm sorry to interrupt. Just yeah. maybe people don't realize this, but we also hosted adults in the ICU and on our wards. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it must be this logistical puzzle. I mean, you're you're dealing with children that you know the. the they're probably suffering from other things other than COVID-19, right? And then you have to assume this whole responsibility, make sure that, you know, n- none of this disease kind of spills over into the other sections of the children that you, you, know, you want to protect the other kids as well. I mean, it must be like a, this enormous the, headache. My, my infection control colleagues, uh, you know, congratulations to them because I wouldn't be able to do the job that they do. They to the point of burnout um, where they would answer like 300 calls a day, 300 emails a day, be here until 10 PM at night preparing the hospital and preparing the protocols, what personal protective equipment, and then we have the shortage uh, of the personal protective equipment in the beginning, uh, what to do, uh, scrambling to find the literature, looking to see if we can reuse and what materials can we reuse and what, uh, you know, what masks can we sterilize safely and, uh, and all this kind of business. Right now we are in a better position, but we are unfortunately, you know, my fear is we are looking at a larger wave than the first one. Wow. So what exactly uh, did we know then when it started and what do we know now about the virus? Well, right now we know that the virus is um, not as deadly as SARS-1 and not as deadly as MERS coronavirus. Um, We know, though, that it is about five times... uh, maybe 10 times deadlier than the common flu. Uh, We know that, and those numbers are still being looked at. Yeah. Uh, But to me, it does, the crude mortality rate doesn't matter. What I see in the hospitals is not the flu. You know, you've never, I've never had, uh, you know, colleagues, because we can talk about how children have fared much better. Like our ICU was practically empty. Uh, we didn't see kids coming in with COVID-19 the way adults did and had to spill over into the children's side because we had room. Mm-hmm. Um, 
obviously it doesn't attack children with such a vengeance as it does adults. Not to say that it has not caused problems for many children. In fact, right now, um, I'm on the quote-unquote COVID floor at the Children's Hospital, and we are dealing with two or three children who have this strange Kawasaki-like illness, and they're quite sick. They had COVID, and, you know, six weeks later, they come in quite sick. So not that it hasn't affected children, but what we know, we found out that it doesn't affect children as badly as the flu does, that it is deadlier than the flu. Um, it is more infectious and easily, you know, very easily transmittable because our population has never seen this type of virus before. So we don't have, you know, prior immunity to other, in, you know, coronaviruses that are very similar to this one, the way we do the flu, where it's just one little mutation per year. And then you have a pandemic that nobody has immunity to, but we haven't had that since 2009. But you have these little mutations from year to year that confer some form of in immunity in the population as a whole, some herd immunity in the population as a whole that doesn't cause these huge rapid white waves and infectious um, transmissions the way this does. We know that it is a very bizarre virus that doesn't only affect the lungs, that causes multiple problems in multiple systems, including blood clots and strokes, apart from the pneumonia, that can kill you. Blood clots and strokes and, and lung clots and, and renal failure and, um, and this uh, strange post-immune attack, like Kawasaki-like multi-system inflammatory disease that is seen in kids and now even described in adults. Uh, the CDC just came out with a report of a few adults being infected with, not infected, but affected with mm -hmm. this. And, uh, and then there's all these people who are what's called the, the long haulers, where they've come over all of this, and then they have for months later, you know, exercise intolerance and not uh, being able to think properly and being confused and brain fog um, lung issues, this cough that, that, you know, they can't catch their breath. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're seeing this. Wow. Uh, you know, there, there were some theories a few weeks ago that this virus uh, may very well be airborne. Uh, is that true? I mean, are, are, is anyone looking into that or? Yeah. So, so the virus is primarily spread like other respiratory viruses, like the flu through, you know, big saliva droplets, mucus droplets, um, close contact because when we talk, we spit, it flies onto people. Um, the other way this virus spreads is through contact. So if we sneeze on our hands or if we cough or if we pick our noses or whatever, and then we touch somebody, yes, or we touch a doorknob and then immediately somebody else touches it and then touch their face. Um, so contact droplet is the way it is through fomites as we call it meaning through inanimate objects like i touch this or i even you know touch the handle it's not the primary way because most of us are washing hands and you know not touching our faces and so the transmission is not easily done through inanimate objects you know everyone's talking about halloween coming up in a few days 
I don't think it's a big deal if people are careful and they wash their hands and they use tongs to, you know, put the, you don't need to wash your groceries or wash everything again. To be safe, if you want to keep things, inanimate things, 24 hours, you know, without touching them, that's fine. Nobody is telling you not to do that. But in terms of airborne that you were telling me about, so there are some procedures that can happen that promote airborne spread. Um, classic airborne viruses that are transmitted are the are uh, chickenpox, measles, and bacteria like tuberculosis. Those are carried by air currents to long distances. They are sturdier viruses, and they can infect people. Like you know, you've got somebody who's coughing, and somebody down the hallway can be infected with what you have. All right. COVID is really not that, or SARS-2 coronavirus is really not that easily transmitted that way. There are instances where an aerosol can be formed. An aerosol is smaller than a droplet. So the aerosol will come out of our mouths or our noses and it'll evaporate. The water will evaporate and the virus will be naked. Once that virus is naked, then it can linger in the air. Eventually it's going to fall down mm-hmm. or eventually the UV light or the te- extreme temperatures will kill it and will not be easily transmissible like other airborne viruses. But if somebody is intubated and they are being suctioned or if they're forcefully coughing or forcefully sneezing, um, then yeah, the potential for aerosolization is there. Somebody who goes to the dentist and gets drilling done, that, zzz, that sound, that potentially can aerosolize the virus. If somebody is screaming or singing loudly like in a choir and they are in a closed space then and if somebody is close to them in that closed space without wearing any personal protective equipment then yes the transmission can occur but this happens rarely Right. I want to get back to what you're saying about uh, the children, how uh, so far they haven't been considered, um, you know, you know, a really significant, you know, transmissible agent. Uh, but, you know, of, of course, we've seen, you know, the positive cases in that age group were you know, almost negligible. Is that still true today? Because as soon as the school started opening back in August, September, you know, cases started rising in the schools. And I think we saw close to like 200 schools closing. Um, I mean, should parents be worried about sending their kids to school? I mean, what's going on in that age group now? Has has anything changed from the beginning? Yeah. So I think that children brought it into the school. Teachers brought it into the school. Um, There hasn't been this impression that kids are infecting each other horizontally Mm -hmm. at a big level, although perhaps they are. Looking at countries that didn't close schools or that opened schools sooner than we did, there have been some kids that have transmitted, but it doesn't seem to be, which is interesting, it doesn't seem to be that children are the main vectors of transmission of this, or the, you know, pushers of this pandemic. Um, we know that 40 to 50% of people who are just about to become sick, so they're pre-symptomatic, they don't have symptoms yet, but they have a very high, they're shedding the virus, very high viral load in their upper airways and and in their nose. They're the ones that are pushing the the, the transmission without knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, once you're sick, you're at home and you're, you know, or, you know, separated from everybody. But it's the people who don't realize that they are incubating the virus 
and they're about to become sick, in those few hours right before they become sick, they're transmitting. They're going around, you know, I don't know, right? Talking loudly, uh, picking their noses or whatever, kissing other people, sharing things. And that's how the transmission has happened. And we saw it when we opened up our economy and the bars opened up and, yeah. you know, restaurants opened up and people were, sec- were congregating together. Um, you know, you, you all saw what happened at the White House. Right. Uh, the Rose Garden, that mm-hmm. super spreader event, even though I was outside and, you know, I, I can't believe that Vice President Pence saying, oh, experts are telling us it's outside, it's safe. Dude, you're the coronavirus ac- uh, task force leader. You don't realize that, yes, outside is safe, but not outside on top of each other, right, right. you know? So children, maybe because they're small and they can't give to an adult as easily because they're not screaming and yelling at, who knows? Or the fact that um, they, they don't carry such, they, they have less receptors in their, uh, for the virus in their upper airway. It remains to be seen, but there are some very interesting epidemiological studies from across the world that showed that children are not the main vectors of transmission, that it's mostly the teenagers mm-hmm. And older adults, teenagers can transmit as easily as older adults. But, you know, but for parents, even if your child does get it, most chances are that they're going to be one of these asymptomatic cases. Right, right, right. Look, I don't want to get you to comment anything, you know, happening politically, um, but I'm sure like anyone else, you know, you're probably following, uh, you know, what the different health professionals are saying, uh, whether it's our own health directors here in Canada or across the other provinces or, you know, even throughout the world. It seems as though there's been, uh, you know, a difference in opinion uh, and approaches, and not only in Canada, not only within Canada, but, you know, also across the world. I mean, there have been recommendations by the World Health Organization that haven't been applied here, but were applied in Europe. I'm thinking, for example, the, the, you know, the wearing of the mask, uh, which came here relatively late compared to to some countries in Europe. Why, uh, you know, is is there a reason uh, for this discrepancy? I mean, what's the, what's the issue there? Well, I think that, you know, without making a political statement, there are countries in this world or leaders in this world that really are, want this thing to go away and want their, you know, their economy to be strong. Because obviously, if we close down everything, the economy collapses and it has, you can see that it has. Um, There is a fine balance as a politician to say it like it is and maybe sugarcoat it a little bit to try to find this balance to maintain public health and maintain the economy. So you give a little, you take a little, you give a little, you take a little. And sometimes because of this, there's this dichotomy that the messages have gotten scrambled and they've been confusing for the public. Um, You know, I don't know why the WHO, I'm not sure what you meant about the masks because in Asia, societies, even before. Yeah, they always wore masks. They always wore masks. I'm thinking, for example, countries like uh, in Greece, Italy, even France and Spain, they automatically uh, adopted the policy of wearing masks in public. And over here, it came really, you know, much later. So wearing masks, so let's say about wearing masks in school, Greece has mandated that everybody above five years of age, six years of age, I can't remember, has to wear a mask in school at all times. Yeah. 
Um, I really don't understand why we are not mandating masks in schools five or six years and older. Of course, you're going to tell me, but you're just telling me that kids aren't the ones that are pushing this pandemic. Yeah, but why not err on the side of caution? The data is still trickling in. What we know now, we didn't know, you know, a month or two or three ago, you know, and I think that we've been humbled multiple times. And as you saw, we pressured, kind of pressured the government and they kind of caved and said, okay, high school students have to wear this because they know that teenagers are the ones that transmit more. But my suggestion is why not everybody above five or six years of age, if you're congregating inside a class and your teachers and everybody wear a mask. Yeah. Um, this is why masks are needed because this piece of fabric, if you put it over your face, you're trapping, even though you've got holes here, even though you've got holes here, even though it's not an N95 mask, I'm talking and everything is being trapped on the inside. Even if a little bit goes out, the, the amount that is infectious is much, much smaller than if I do this and I'm screaming and yelling. Right. So this, the mask is not to protect us, which was the wrong thinking in the beginning. In the beginning. Because we obviously, you know, obviously also needed to preserve this for the healthcare workers. This is to protect others from you because you don't know when you're going to fall sick. Right. And, you know, and I think that why Europe has done it, they, you know, I can only speculate that it is a political decision. Perhaps some countries that whose economy is much more um, fragile require more draconian measures you saw greece one yeah. of the first countries to mm, lock it down completely yeah. Yeah. and you saw their wave went like this yeah it barely it barely but affected compared them. to other countries that went like this yeah look the, the the cases here in quebec they're on the rise again i mean we're i think we're well over a thousand a day yes uh, and I, I can't remember exactly but i think that this time around back in april we were completely in lockdown Yes. Um, and like you said, I mean, obviously there, there, there's a, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, collapsing completely your economy uh, and seeing if you can kind of control the situation a little bit. But do you think we're making the right decision here? Are we being less careful than we were back in March or April? I think, you know, nobody likes lockdowns. Okay. They're not good for the economy. They're right. not good for, and, and what's not good for the economy is not good for people's jobs, people's well-being, people's psyche. Uh, unfortunately, this pandemic has uncovered a lot of psychopathology in our society um, where people rightfully so became depressed and people, perhaps not rightfully so, uh, veered toward the conspiracy route saying that this is all fake, yeah. world domination, etc., whatever you want to call it. Um, and of course, certain politicians have abused that for their advantage. Um, I think a lockdown is necessary if you are about to see a tidal wave, if you are foreseeing that what's going to happen is going to overwhelm your healthcare system. And what is worse for the economy yeah. than a lockdown is people overwhelming the healthcare system and collapsing it to the point where people can't go to work, people yeah. have to quarantine, you're going to lock down regardless. Yeah, and, and you're and you're foreseeing this wave coming. You're think you think you think it's going to be way bigger than the first time. It already is. Yeah. Not in deaths yet. Yeah. Because the deaths always lag two to four weeks afterwards after the cases start. It's about the 
eighth day, five to eight days when people start getting really sick and requiring hospital care. And by the 10th day is when people who require to be needing ICU care go to the ICU. And, you know, we can talk about Sweden. I think their approach is wrong. Mm-hmm. Sure, their economy, their economy shrank. Don't let anybody tell you that their economy didn't shrink. In the second quarter of 2020, their economy shrank 8%, just oh, 7%, sorry, just a little bit less than 8.3% of the United States economy. They all shrank. Mm-hmm. Um, now, their economy is starting to go up again, but their unemployment is still at you know, 15, 20%. Um, sure, they might bounce back faster, but we are such an interconnected world that Sweden is not an island and their economy is still going to be bad after all of this. But what they did sacrifice is lives. Right. Their per capita death rate per million people is astronomically higher and it's in the top 10 of the world. It's almost up there with the United States. It's almost up there with, um, with Belgium. Um, and Italy, who got slammed mm-hmm. in the beginning. So, you know, do I like lockdowns? No. How can we avoid a lockdown? Wear a mask. Yeah. Wash your hands. You want the economy to open? You do that. I want to go back to what you're saying about people comparing it to the flu. And uh, like you said, yeah, we were quick to jump into this conspiracy theorist attitude, which happens, I think, with pretty much anything. You know, it was, all, it was almost to be expected. Uh, but, you know, people comparing this to the flu um, uh, or to other seasonal viruses, unfortunately, you know, they, they, them too, they, they, they take a similar portion of lives every year, if not possibly less. In this, yes. it's maybe a little bit more. But as a doctor, you know, what's your reaction to this? You know, why, if at all, uh, is this different and why should we you know be more cautious because it's not the flu i'm sorry i was looking down because uh texted by my resident uh from the floor um because it's not the flu yeah it isn't it isn't the flu has not taken up at any season the flu has not taken up all of the icu beds in an adult hospital ever yeah. Even in the 2009 swine flu pandemic, which turned out to be more of a dud because it wasn't very deadly. It was like 0.1, 0.2% mortality rate. But a lot of people did get sick because a lot of people got, got infected. Mm-hmm. And so there were a number of deaths in 2009. Looking at the excess mortality, overall excess mortality, it's like astronomical in 2020 compared to 2019. Right. You can't, you know, and then you have all these long haulers that can't get back to what they used to do before. Right. So, you know, it's not like, oh, you've got a cold and it's gone. No, you got the flu, it's gone. Most of the times. Sometimes it leaves you with some after effects like, you know, heart and lung. Right. But this one here seems to be, even young people seem to have heart damage, lung damage, brain damage that is long lasting and, and they're debilitated. All right. I know you got to go back to work. One last question. Uh, is there a realistic timeline for a vaccine or maybe even a cure? I mean, how hopeful are you that we're, uh, you know, about returning back to normalcy sooner rather than later? So without, you know, I have to say it like it is. I can't, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a physician. I don't think we're going to turn be back to normal before the summer 
of this year. I think we will be wearing masks for a few more months and way past into the summer, because even if the vaccine comes out, by the way, I'm touching my face and stuff, but don't worry, I washed my hands before coming into my <laughs> you're, you're office. You're not next to me, so I'm not worried. nobody around here and there's no COVID on this hand. But um, I have to say, though, we, had a, we got to intersperse it with some humor once in a while. Sure, yeah. I have to say, though, that vaccine, the phase three trials are looking promising. Yes, you hear it in the news, so-and-so got sick, one person died, maybe, perhaps, in Brazil. Maybe that person was on the placebo, maybe not. The data is still being looked at. But we are, you know, and, and whether it is because of the vaccine or whether it's because if there is a, um, uh, you know, by chance. Because if you follow 30,000 people, one or two people might get sick with something else. And then just because they got the vaccine, is it because of the vaccine or is it because of something else? Right. So, um, you know, I think we have to, it's like saying, you know, you're, you're being followed in a trial, you get the vaccine and then you get lung cancer, but you're a smoker. So is it because you got lung cancer because you got the vaccine or is it because you got it because you were smoking? So all of these have to be looked at. Now, you know, these are crude examples that I'm giving you, but the phase three trials look very promising for a couple of the, you know, vaccines that are out there already. And it, you know, I was listening to Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci of the United States um, yesterday on a conference call. And he was uh, saying that we're looking at optimistically cautious, looking at sometime end of November, early December, where they might ask for emergency authorization from the United States, from the FDA. It doesn't mean that the vaccine is going to be ready because you have to mass produce it, you have to give it, and you're still following up these patients, these volunteers that got it. In fact, what they need to do is they need to see now of those volunteers, they need to see how many of these get infected with COVID and how many of these don't end up getting sick. So far, the antibodies are there. The immunity is there. That's what's the promising. But does it work? So we have to see now that that wave is like this in the United States, I'm sure people are going to be infected and these volunteers are going to be out in society, not wearing masks on purpose. Right. You know, and so they have to see how they respond and how they fare. I think they're going to get the data and, you know, we're being cautiously optimistic, but they have to mass produce it and then give it out to people. What about here in Canada? What's what's happening here in Canada? It's, we're kind of parallel with whatever's happening in the United States. I'm going to let you go. Well, I, know I, think, busy, yeah. I think the vaccine is going to be available sometime in early to mid-2021. We are still going to be wearing masks. Um, um, you need about 60 to 70% herd immunity for this virus in order for the curve to go flat. And, uh, you know, either that's going to be with a lot of deaths because a lot of people getting sick that's the herd immunity model, the natural herd immunity model, or it's going to be through a vaccine, which is what I hope and what many people hope. Right. Thank you for your time. I'm going to let you get back to work. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, honestly, I think I speak for everyone uh, when I say thank you um, for everything that you're doing and for literally putting yourself in harm's way um, to keep us safe. Um, hopefully everything will be uh well for you and for your colleagues and for all of us, basically. Thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to speak and uh, I can always come back and give you an update in the future. Absolutely. Looking forward to that one. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. Have a good day.